0: Pro se law 360s weekly podcast I'm your host Amber McKinney and I'm here with my co-host Bill Donahue
1: hello hello
0: and Alex Lawson
2: hey guys uh, I want to start out the show uh, by giving a shout out to one of our listeners uh, one of our one of our most loyal listeners from the very beginning as I understand it because it's not just any listener it is one Peggy Joe Donahue <laughs> mother of lauded pro se co-host Bill Donahue yep um,
0: I like this already. Why is Peggy Joe getting a shout out?
2: Well, um, the story, uh, I guess last week or the week before, mm-hmm. um, I was doing a story that was about the, the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, probably trying to do a trade agreement after Brexit was done. Okay. And it touched on um, these demands from a bunch of senators who didn't want a new trade deal to touch the, uh, the Good Friday agreement. The Good Friday agreement, of course is the accord that brought peace um, between Ireland and Northern Ireland and ended uh, the period of time known as the Troubles. Uh-huh. And I know a little bit about the Troubles, but as I was writing it, you know, again, like sort of tangentially, I realized it's something that I have like an extremely cursory level of knowledge about, and I wanted to know more about it. But it's the kind of thing it was like there's been a million history books written sure. about that part of Irish history, and some of them presume a certain level of knowledge, and I wanted a good entry level to this. And I know that Bill is a student of history, um, and Irish history specifically, so I asked him to recommend something, and then you want to take it from here? I, well, I,
1: I, I asked you. It was a fair question. I mean, I've been to Ireland a few yeah, times. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I, I like Irish history, but I realized that I didn't have – I had no answer to this. I didn't have a book. I hadn't read a book. Uh – so, ne- never read a book this <laughs> guy. <laughs> I'm actually, what's weird is I am illiterate. Um, it makes high, it really tough for a job, High functioning. But you, yes. Yeah. But so I texted my mom and said that I, you know, I, I didn't have this. And she's like, well, I'll send you one. I'm I'm what what's your, let let's go right now. I think you like, called <laughs> it like peak mom behavior or yep.
2: something. Not not even making a recommendation. She was like, "Well, I'll send you one." And like, right, 2 2. It was great.
1: And then th- 3 days later, it arrived at the office. Yes, um, I have it here. I have it here. I would like to say, yeah. "Mom, I, it's a it's a heavy book. I hope you didn't bankrupt yourself on postage." I was uh, Yeah,
2: that that's it's very kind of you. It's called Home Rule in Irish History from 1800 to the year 2000 by uh, a writer named Alvin Jackson. I haven't cracked it yet. I'm finishing some other things, but just wanted to thank Mrs. Donahue. Appreciate it. Appreciate the uh, the thought.
0: I really love everything about this story, top <laughs> to bottom. <laughs> yes. But I also love that that's... I would like to just put a general shout out for a thing I want, and have someone just sh- send it to the office. That's so nice.
2: Well, your your mother is very considerate. Like I say, like didn't just make a recommendation. Send it. Is this is this from her collection? I believe. Yeah, I believe it. it is, I would say yeah. it looked like. I mean, this is uh, this is on loan from the Peggy Jo Donahue collection.
0: This is also great because my only knowledge of the Trebles really is from uh, Dairy Girls on Netflix. So that's about it. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah all I mean, I've got. like you
2: say, there's all kinds of entry points. And I'm glad <laughs> to just have a nice, good history book to do with. So yeah. thank you again, Mrs. Donahue. I I, I really do appreciate it.
0: Uh, uh, there's no good way to segue away from such a charming story, which I like so <laughs> yeah. much. But I will tell people what's coming up later in the show. We're going to have R.J. vote on. He's our Access to Justice reporter. And he's talking about this um, thing I think is kind of weird that I'd never heard of, that cops can Photoshop mugshots. And mm-hmm. that leads to all sort of ethical questions about whether that's good or bad and, and what's going on there. So he's going to break it down for us.
1: But before then, we uh, the, the big news of the week was the um – the the arrest of a a Silicon Valley bigwig, a, uh, a former star engineer at at first at Google, then at Uber, who um, he was arrested this week for stealing this uh, something like fourteen thousand documents from from Google about self driving car technology. Which I don't think it needs. We don't need to go into too deeply. That that's obviously a big thing. That people are you know whoever's going to be on the ground floor of that is going mm-hmm. to make a lot of money in the next uh, few decades. Um, but so it it it's it's obviously a huge technology, but it's also, you know, this case, we've been watching it for two years. It's yep. it's it this the arrest comes after this civil case. And, um, you know, it's such an interesting story of just like the inner workings of these Silicon Valley companies. And um, but then also just this this really interesting legal question about, you know, the interplay between civil cases and criminal cases. It's a it's a fascinating story.
0: I love so many things about this case. Like you said, it's really fascinating, and you've followed it really closely along with some of our team out in California that's been on the ground at some of these um, court proceedings. Mm-hmm. But tell us about this guy in particular, because that's what's happening right now.
1: So his name is Anthony Lewandowski, and he was the, um, you know, he was a he was a sort of a whiz with self-driving car technology even before any of this started when he was a, he was a grad student at Berkeley. and, and um, so he joined Google in the late 2000s and he was working on their self-driving projects, which I think was Project X first, and then it became yeah. Waymo. They later spun off Waymo as sort of an independent subsidiary of, of Alphabet there parent company um, but so he worked on this technology called lidar which is a acronym that's this it's it's basically the light sensors that are on the front of a car that that guide a, an, an autonomous vehicle um, so in 2016 getting to sort of our story Lewandowski left to form his own company um, it was a company called auto which is uh, a, they were self-driving trucks was the was the planned product and um Uh, you know, it's not that weird of a thing. I mean, Google has this huge footprint in Silicon Valley, and people start their careers there and then bounce somewhere else. And it's a, you know, that's a big part of that culture. Um, but the thing where it gets a little unusual is that right after he left and founded this separate company, um, Otto was almost immediately gobbled up for a, a reported seven hundred million dollars by Uber, mm-hmm. which at the same time was developing its own rival uh, self driving car technology. They had the whole thing in Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. It was yeah. So it 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 didn't look great. What yeah. had gone down? Yeah,
2: and we talked. Um, about the the lawsuit that that sprung up from this but just to remind us i remember so i mean he so he gets his company gets scooped up by uber can't imagine google's too happy what happens next? no
1: so in early 2017 uh waymo sued uber for the theft of trade secrets a civil lawsuit mm-hmm. um saying that Lewandowski had downloaded this huge trove of proprietary information before he left onto his laptop again like i said it was like fourteen thousand documents yeah. um uh basically they accused uber of trying to shortcut this process they said that we've been working on this for for like eight years and we've put all this mo- money and time into it and you basically hired away one of our people with a all this all this proprietary, with, with all this stuff. proprietary yeah. info mm-hmm. so um but you know I've been careful in my wording here the 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 lawsuit did not name Lewandowski he is written throughout it he is at the center of it um, but he was not named as a defendant Um so for a lot of the reasons that I alluded to up top, the case was automatically a very big deal. It was two of Silicon Valley's biggest companies fighting in court. It was sort of a coming of age for trade secrets, which we talk about a lot, where yeah. there had been these sort of trial of the century patent cases before, but this was a trade secrets lawsuit over mm-hmm. potentially billions and dollars in damages. This has
0: got everything that we look for and something fun to write about. It's yeah. like two huge companies, it's cutting edge technology, uh, like it's, generational
1: it's, technology. Right. It's like it's like the thing, you know, this is the next this yes. is the next smartphone, this is the next you know. Yeah. Well, and from the legal standpoint, like you
2: say, like in the in the like IP realm, like trademarks are like sort of more emergent than trade you secrets. Know, than, yeah. Trade secrets, yeah, than than copyrights and patents and trademarks. So it's like got that angle too. Yeah. But like you say, so we have this um you know, civil battle between these two companies, and it's obviously a lot of money and a lot of interesting technology at stake, but it's not a criminal thing yet.
1: And that's how we we got there this week. No, and, and that's what makes it that's what makes this so interesting, is that we were following along beat by beat with this civil case that was being litigated but we kept getting these little um sort of like wisps of of that there was maybe something yeah. criminal going on underneath um so at one of the very earliest conferences in the civil case um Lewandowski had attorneys there because he obviously was named throughout the the thing so he's not named as a defendant but his attorneys are there as this non-party yeah player um And his attorneys invoke his Fifth Amendment rights, Ah. Um,
0: which you don't expect. uh,
1: "Quote: Given the nature of the allegations in this case, we recognize that there's a potential for criminal action." (laughs) So this was like weeks after the case had been filed. Yeah, yeah. the first. And I will say, we're going to talk about him again. But Judge William Alsup was the is the judge presiding over this case. He's a very. It's like
0: we've hit Law Three Hundred and Sixty Bingo with this one. Definitely, but he's a character,
1: and he was. You know, he was saying like like you're you're your clients in a lot of mess. Like this is a, you're in a lot of trouble. This is a problem for you. And yeah. Like, um, but so anyway. So a few months later, ALSIP, um took this extremely unusual step, at, and at the time, seemingly sort of out of nowhere, of uh, asking the U.S. Department of Justice to launch a criminal investigation into what Waymo said Uber had done. Um, uh, he said he had seen compelling evidence, including signs that uh, that Lewandowski and Uber had planned for Otto to be acquired before, you know, that the, yeah. this had mm-hmm. been some sort of scheme. Um, and then in November, on the eve of trial, it had been months since we had gotten this, um, the, the judge recommending this criminal probe. And, you know, we mm-hmm. weren't going to know anything about that. That happens in sort of in secret. Um, we're right on the edge of the trial and the judge says... Wait a second. I've been forwarded a letter um that had been sent by a former Uber employee that detailed all these different bombshell accusations against Uber that were pertinent to this case. That they had, you know, separate servers for various things that they like for um to, to shield it from discovery and, and yeah. all sorts of other like really bombastic claims that would have been pertinent in discovery in this case that hadn't been turned over yeah. to Waymo. That disclosure eventually delayed the trial by like two and a half months. We didn't have a trial till February of 2018. Mm-hmm. The source of that letter, federal prosecutors who had oh, yes. turned it up during the course of their investigation into it. They were very cagey about it. You know, they didn't say much, but yeah. um, quote, in the course of the United States pending criminal investigation. So at that point, we knew there was a criminal investigation
2: yeah, underway. You, yeah. You can see it in the negative space of the court filings of the of the civil case. Exactly. Yeah. You
0: couldn't write up until this point a more compelling narrative if you were just writing a screenplay. Yeah. But right. we did get a wrinkle here. Right around that time, the case just settled. The civil one just yeah. Settled. We
1: got sort of a uh, to use your analogy, we sort of got like an intermission um, yeah. in the case. Uh, it was so right as the trial got underway, that we had a few days of trial, um, and it was you know it it was it was this huge trial that everyone right. was watching. We had somebody in the courtroom. It was a lot of media attention, um, and then bam, uh, Uber uh, agrees to pay two hundred and forty five million dollars to settle the case, make it go away, which in hindsight. Maybe makes sense because you know uh, who, who knows. But um, yeah. uh, our Cara Bayless uh, was in the courtroom for it and had some really great color um, when Judge, <laughs> the judge quote elicited an audible gasp from the courtroom when he announced <laughs> the and excused the jury. Yes,
0: I mean there was an audible gasp between us here yeah. in the newsroom just when we were Kara, all ready to talk Kara about filed. it. And and then, yeah. Oh,
1: that's right, then, I forgot about that. We were going to. Oh was, yeah, this that is, was the whole show. Yeah. yeah, and then it was like, well, okay, yeah. Um, but anyway didn't end there, as we now know. Right. So, I mean, we, you know, the case goes away. And um, but there was still this lingering feeling of like, well, we know that a criminal investigation was underway. And at the during the trial, the question was whether or not they were investigating Lewandowski or whether they were investigating Uber or both or what. Um, So, you know, right when this happened, I wrote a story where I talked to a bunch of former U.S. attorneys where it was like, well, does it matter that that they settled their private case and to a person they all said like no not at all like that if anything they they like they have way better investigative tools they are you know if they if they sniffed something and they're going down that road the fact that uber and google had made nice was not going to stop proceeding that on a new track now investigation yeah. um and i mean cr- th- we talked about this a little off the air but like criminal criminal trade secrets cases are pretty rare yeah. relative to how many trade secrets cases are brought. But I mean, they do happen. And it, and again, as we said, it's extremely rare that a judge specifically said, like, look, I looked at a bunch of uh, evidence and I think you really should look into this. So yeah. uh, fast forward to Monday and um, prosecutors charged Lewandowski with 33 counts of theft and attempted theft of trade secrets from Waymo. Um you know, it's it's an interesting situation because employee employee mobility and job poaching and this whole idea of moving around within Silicon Valley. That's like a big part of what has made the American tech industry such a right. sort of dynamic place. And the DOJ really hit on a lot of that stuff when they, you know, in their announcing these charges. They made a point to, to talk about that stuff. Yeah. But they but to say that, like, that doesn't excuse what 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 happened here, the quote. All of us are free to move from job to job. What we cannot do is stuff our pockets on the way out the door. Yeah. Um, So you know, it's it's that those kind of things they form more interesting questions when they're in you know more gray areas. But here it seems like pretty tough fact pattern for, for it does. I mean,
0: we've painted a, a really bleak picture for how things may go for him. Does he have an attorney that's said anything? Has he said anything himself yet?
1: Yeah, his attorney, um, who it's the same guy who in the as I was I was going through the transcripts from years ago when I pulled that quote about um him invoking his fifth amendment rights. Um same guy. Uh okay. all these, you know, a year and a half two and a half years later. Um but uh the quote was the case will eventually show that quote that Anthony did not steal anything, not from Google, not from anyone. Period. So we will see. We'll see it is how a that goes. Uh, yeah. It's it's certainly going to be the next phase, like you said, like I said earlier. The uh, we're getting the the final act of this case that we've been tracking for a long time.
2: Yeah. Um, so the other uh, big sort of legal story, um, apart from the from the Lewandowski thing, I think was this um, uh, this. Uh, verdict or th- this uh, this ruling in the opioid trial that's going on in Oklahoma, and it was really a um, uh, really a watershed moment for these many different legal battles we've been talking about with regard to the opioid crisis uh, on Monday. I say there was a uh, federal judge in Oklahoma who ruled that Johnson and Johnson basically directly caused the state's opioid e- uh, epidemic and ordered Johnson and Johnson to pay five hundred seventy-two million dollars for basically deceiving doctors and patients about the safety of the narcotic painkillers that it that it that it makes.
0: Yeah, we've talked about opioids a lot on this podcast because there's a lot of different lawsuits that have been filed trying to sort of beat back the the things that led to the epidemic in the U.S., but why is this one in particular, like you said, like a, a bit of a watershed here? In yes. What's
2: going on? So there are uh, like I said, there's been a bunch of cases that have cropped up. We've talked about many of them on the show. Um, there are more still waiting, but many of them so far have ended in settlements. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Purdue and uh, Teva Pharmaceuticals were actually in this case that we're talking about right now. At an earlier stage, they settled. Johnson & Johnson was the only one left. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, I mean, we, we have not had any kind of formal judicial statement about the, the, the culpability, if any, of drug makers in the you know, opioid crisis. And now we have it. Uh, we have this judge, um, Thad Balkman, um, who made this ruling and says, says, yes, you, Johnson & Johnson, it is you who is responsible for this addiction crisis you know, in our state, and now you have to pay. Um, the legal arguments were pretty simple. Um, they, the Oklahoma AG's office basically just said that the crisis is obviously driven by doctors who were prescribing opioids too often and to too many people, and that the reason that they did that is because J&J and its many subsidiaries were very dishonest about uh, the addictive nature of the drugs, and they poured in just a bunch of money to, like, sort of sway doctors groups and advocacy groups and things like that. Um, This was – he actually – it was – before he delivered his opinion, he made a statement from the bench. Uh, This is Judge Balkman. My judgment includes a finding that those actions compromised the health and safety of thousands of Oklahomans. Specifically, defendants caused an opioid crisis that is evidenced by an increased rates of addiction, overdose deaths, and neonatal abstinence syndrome in Oklahoma. So that's pretty plainly um, yeah. putting it right at the feet of this you know, huge drug maker, which, yeah. is a, which is a big deal.
0: I feel like we're seeing sort of the tide turning in, in where we are with some of these because we've seen executives going to jail for activities from like pharma companies. Yes. Um, and now we have some judges, like you said, clearly stating from the bench that- Pharma companies can be on the hook for this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about the cash here. Yeah, uh, five hundred seventy-two million sounds big, but is it big?
2: Yeah, um, it's. I mean, it's, I it, would like to say it's big. I was just going <laughs> to say it is. It is categorically <laughs> an enormous amount of money. Well,
0: you know what I mean. There, yes, right. I, do. I mean, in the scope of what's going on yeah, here, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a nationwide epidemic. Yeah, yeah
2: I mean, the, the the first sort of beyond the news stories about the verdict itself, the next sort of round of news stories was about how. Johnson and Johnson's stock actually went up after this uh, uh, ruling came down, and that That's is because—crazy. Uh, well, well, it's because um, a lot of sort of people who play the market and follow things like that thought it was going to be a lot higher. They thought they were going to be on the hook for about like two or three billion dollars, right? And so, you know, it, it, it sort of tanked at that time, and this allowed it to sort of rally back up. But uh, beyond whatever's going on with the stock market, the reason for the sort of small amount of of money. Um, It's kind of interesting. Uh, So the state wasn't seeking like damage, like money damages from the company. They were looking for um, they asked the court for a 17 billion dollar payout over the course of about 30 years to what they called um, an abatement plan. And this is this would have forced Johnson and Johnson to make payments to things like sort of public education campaigns, addiction centers uh, or addiction treatment services, medical training things that are meant to like prevent something like this from happening. Is right like you just cut a check
0: to, yeah, like if to, to the cause, state and then you're done. Yeah, you cause an epidemic yeah we're going to make you pay for the things to try to battle that e- epidemic essentially.
2: It was an interesting idea, um but Judge Balkman while he found in favor of the state said he didn't think that the that the state's law it was uh taken under a public nuisance law, which we'll talk about in a second. Um he didn't think it allowed for that kind of for that kind of specific punishment. And he said this might be something for the state's Lawmakers and policymakers to mull over. So he basically um gave them this five hundred and seventy two million dollars, which is about uh, what it would cost to do one year of this thirty year plan. Wow. And he said this is all you've made a compelling argument. but as far as sort of what comes next, this is what I think I
1: can do.
0: It does put it in perspective when that that number, like like you guys said, like it is on the face of it a big number, but yeah. it's only one year of the plan that they wanted,
1: yeah. but so, I mean, this is this is a landmark ruling. but I mean, Seems like the I don't know it. It seems like there's more than that, or that that. Yeah,
2: I mean it's it's it, it's it's definitely huge. Uh, it, this a uh, day before the ruling came down, it came down that uh, uh, news broke that uh, Purdue. Was floating the idea of paying like anywhere between ten and twelve billion dollars to settle a bunch of pending settlements. They're right at the center of this multi-district litigation that's uh, still pending, so it's like it's definitely a big deal that a judge said this. But um, there are a few unique factors that um, Jeff Overly wrote about, our our senior uh, uh, healthcare reporter um which is basically that this is very unique to Oklahoma in the sense that it was tried under Oklahoma's public nuisance law mm-hmm. and he the the judge basically accepted the state's framing of that law in a pretty unusual way people were kind of surprised by this these are the type of laws that are that generally deal with property disputes the idea of like a po- like pollution into a river or like mm-hmm. possession of like diseased animals or like loud noises things like that right yeah. things that like disturb you know, your property and like the way that you are living your life and things like that. It's not usually done for the sale of consumer goods like drugs. Um, uh, But the state said that J&J should be held liable because they basically they basically found its deceptive marketing and sales of opioids creates a public nuisance. Um, No one had ever quite framed it that way. But the judge that was good enough to satisfy for the judge. But J&J has already said in their statements after the trial that they are going to make that that kind of unique reading a central point of their appeal. They intend mm-hmm. to appeal. Um, they said that they, they called it a radical departure from the way we understand public nuisance laws. The, the, the company put out this statement. No Oklahoma court has ever done what this court has done today in applying public nuisance law to any commercial activity, let alone the highly regulated area of prescription medicines. The decision violates well-established constitutional principles, including due process of law. So... Uh, they are not happy obviously hmm. uh, I right. can't imagine uh, they would be um so they're going to appeal this and that's will that will run its own course um, whenever a judge you know develops a new reading of a law there's always the
1: the the tricky matter of if other judges uh, who outrank him will agree well sure. you, you mentioned earlier the MDL which yes. I think it can be confusing to sort of Frame this in the bigger picture. Does this have any impact on that? Yeah.
2: So the MDL, there's a multi district litigation in Ohio that's pending. They're set for a trial in October. Like, which a, is basically cases from all around the country. Yeah. There, there's yeah. like two thousand cases. Yes. There's like two thousand cases pending. Uh, Purdue's at the center of it. A couple other drug makers, and that is sort of seen as, um, you know, that 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 will obviously be whatever comes of it is the biggest in scale type of decision right. we could get in this regard. Um, but the contours of that of that case are still taking shape. They don't like, you know. We're trying to decide the sort of best course of action to make these arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the Oklahoma AG used this this sort of very creative argument and got a favorable ruling. It will be interesting to see if they want if the prosecutors in Ohio who are you know pursuing that case try to take the sort of same gambit and see if they can come away with a, with a similar ruling.
0: banks were robbed in Oregon and the main suspect had face tattoos that eyewitnesses had not mentioned to the police. So the police photoshopped them out before the lineup. I didn't know they could do that and it raises lots of questions about the validity of suspect IDs. Here to break it down for us is our Access to Justice reporter, RJ Vote. Welcome back to the show, RJ.
3: Hey guys, yeah, thanks for having me on.
0: What a weird one to talk about. Your story was really fascinating about how police can Photoshop mugshots. Um, It jumps out at you as like, I I didn't know that they
1: were allowed to do that. Yeah,
0: (laughs) I mean, I want to get into sort of all the nitty gritty about when they can and can't do that and the contours, but you got into it in a great way, which was the story of one guy, one suspect who had this happen in his case. So can you just tell us about him?
3: Yeah, sure thing. So um, over a five day span in April 2017, there were four bank robberies in Portland, They're all kind of close together. The robber used the same strategy. And so police were looking for kind of one guy who did all four. And sure enough, the security footage showed the same guy doing it each time. Mm -hmm. And they got this anonymous tip that it was that was somebody named Tyrone Allen. So they looked Tyrone Allen up in their system. and They found an old booking photo of him. And he looked like the guy in the security footage, kind of, except for one critical difference. Allen has tattoos all over his face and neck. And according to the bank tellers and the security footage, the robber didn't. Mm-hmm. So cops did what cops apparently do in this situation. They just photoshopped his face tattoos right out of the booking photo and then showed it to victims with photos of other people that could have been the bank robber. And uh, two of the four tellers said that maybe it was Alan. And they didn't know that Alan normally had face tattoos. They were yeah. just going off of this photoshopped photo. And so with that evidence, the cops charged him and his jury trial is set for October.
1: Well, and...
0: It's wild, right? We I mean, hit, I, I just, right. It, we that hit it up top crazy. that
1: it doesn't seem like. It. So there's an interesting. The, well,
0: you th- don't see an episode of Law and Order where suddenly they're like sitting at a computer and a, <laughs> and a graphic designer is is photoshopping. Yeah. A, well, a they're like shot. they're
1: like they're like I think this case would work if we just photoshopped him to look more like the the, yeah. the suspect. Um, but your story made a really interesting point to say that that this process that I think a lot of people don't know about, that, where the alteration of these photos happens, um, that it it comes... it's In this case, it sounds like a thing that's being done in sort of a violation of civil liberties, but it comes from a place of like, you're trying to be fair. The police are trying to be fair about how they identify these people.
3: Right. That's actually what they said in the court filings. And I, I talked to some researchers. And basically, when it comes to photo lineups, police are supposed to do everything they can to make sure that the suspect doesn't stand out from the other people that are in the lineup. Right. right. That that, you know, one of the things that happens a lot is people misidentify somebody in a in a photo lineup and that actually can lead to wrongful convictions. So I spoke with this researcher from the UK. She's kind of a, an expert on the topic. And she said that uh, there's a few different ways that police are supposed to handle people who have distinctive features. And we're talking about face tattoos or scars or black eyes, okay. or whatever mm-hmm. it is. They can replicate the feature onto everybody else or they could conceal the feature, like they did in this case, or they could find a lineup where everybody had that feature. Now, conceivably, Portland police couldn't find six guys with face tattoos, and even if they could, it would have confused the witnesses, right? Right. Right. Because the witnesses are like, the guy didn't have face tattoos. Now, the police say that he could have been wearing makeup when he robbed the banks, stuff like that. Um, But according to the DOJ, the official policy is supposed to be to replicate The distinctive feature across all of them, right?
0: Because if you show a lineup to people and it's somebody with a big scar on their face, and there's only one person in the lineup with that scar, they're just going to pick that one person, right?
3: Even if the the person who robbed the bank didn't have a scar that they saw, it can just make somebody stand up. There's all this psychology that goes into it, but if if there's just one distinctive thing on that person, chances are higher that that the witness is just going to randomly pick that person.
1: But the 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 play here normally is to modify the other the other people in the lineup not the not the person themselves the the the
3: suspect themselves right so according there's not a ton of surveys on this if if you aren't totally surprised by this cops don't love talking about this procedure <laughs> but um in 2004 there was a survey done of police departments across the country and 77% said that when they're in this situation they try to find filler filler suspects with the same identifying features so okay. they would have ideally 77% of the time they would have had five other guys with face tattoos the other 23 percent said that sometimes they do replication like i was talking about and Mm -hmm. about 18 percent said they would use concealment which is what the portland police did so that's it sounds like it's a pretty widespread uh practice have have courts
1: weighed in on whether or not this you know uh police departments are allowed to do this or the
3: extent to which they're allowed to do this so the the case literature is actually pretty sparse but it was interesting the doj which is prosecuting mr allen in this case they cited to a case out of california a few years ago where cops edited all six guys in a photo lineup so that it looked like each of them was wearing a hoodie mm-hmm. and one of the guys had objected because the culprit in the case it was like an assault had worn a hoodie and he said you're making me look more like the suspect the judge said that was okay in this instance because the witness had asked can you make them all look like they're wearing hoodies and also all of them were made to look like they were wearing hoodies it wasn't like the suspect was made to wear a hoodie and the other five were just wearing their normal clothes so that judge said it was okay and the doj has cited to that the attorney for mr allen however pointed out that that's a completely different scenario all six of them were altered it wasn't just one suspect being altered and
0: also it's different um because it is a, sort of adding an article of clothing too. I mean, this this is literally like taking away distinguishing things on his actual face, which seems a little different.
3: Yeah, the, there's definitely the aspect of it. It is a it is an identifying feature, and as, as his attorney has pointed out, the fact that none of the witnesses mentioned the robber. I mean, they were all face to face with this guy for like 20 seconds to yeah. a minute being right. robbed. They would have noticed if he had a face tattoo. So, right. so taking that away is like a huge determining factor in his in his. Um, charge.
0: So this is an open case that we're talking about here. And we've sort of laid down the groundwork of police can do this, but it's a little unclear whether or not they cross a line here. What did his attorney say? I mean, I presume they're challenging this lineup.
3: Yeah. Well, the interesting thing was that nobody told Mr. Allen or his attorney or even the witnesses when they were making the ID that the photo had been altered. It wasn't until discovery was proceeding that his attorney was looking at all the papers and realized the photo that they showed the witnesses didn't have tattoos. And he went back and found the original photos and saw it did have tattoos and, and put two and two together and was like, somebody's been Photoshopping. Mm-hmm. So he- That's imme- a
0: real like Matlock moment where you're yeah. like, yeah. in your case files and you're like, wait a minute.
3: Yeah, totally. And so he immediately filed a motion to suppress the evidence. And mm-hmm. this is the main evidence that they have yeah. for this for this case. So he filed the motion to suppress the evidence. They had a hearing in uh, earlier in August And if the judge says no, then I mean, I can imagine there's going to be it's going to be a really hard conviction for DOJ to get. And for the for the folks who aren't, you know, criminal
1: procedure uh, (laughs) whizzes out there, there, there's a rule that that if there's if there's evidence that helps the defense, the prosecution is obligated to give it to them. Right. I assume that 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 this situation raises that issue as well. Yeah, it's
3: known as a Brady violation. And that is I spoke with a uh, ACLU representative from Oregon. And he said that that's one of the things they're really looking at in this case is was there could there have been a Brady violation? The fact that the prosecution edited this photo to make him look more like the suspect, even if the judge says, you know what, this is standard. There's a DOJ manual on this. They were trying not to make him stand out. Mm -hmm. And so even if that is okay, on on a whole nother level, there's this concern of shouldn't they have told the attorney so that he could make a case sooner that. You know, you've made him look more like the suspect. This isn't fair.
0: And we're talking about one man's case, which is a really interesting illustration. But it did make me think, like, first of all, I didn't know before reading your story they can even do this. And if there are other potential Brady violations out there where things are being altered and no one's being told about it.
3: Right. Right. And that's where it just comes right back down to the fundamental thing I read about, which is access to justice. In this case, Allen has a public defender who figured this out. But we have no idea how many people are out there that have been edited to look more like suspects, right. and didn't have a good public defender, mm-hmm. or maybe their public defender was so overworked that he didn't have the time or the wherewithal to figure out that the e- photo had been edited. So we really don't know how pervasive this, uh, this concept is. And um, I think that now the case has gotten all this media attention, there might be more investigation into how often the police are getting on their photoshop
0: well thanks for explaining all of it to us rj i i I will be really interested to see how this turns out for for alan
3: yep thanks so much
0: Guys, we've had a really packed show, so I think it's time for us to wrap it up today.
2: Yeah, I gotta go. I got—I have some reading about Irish history to do. I gotta so go I give gotta,
1: my mom a call. So
2: yes,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, we all have things to do. That um, goes for
2: everybody. Everybody, give your mom a call—not your mom, Bill, but but right. your your your
1: respective mothers. Yes.
0: <laughs> all right. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See
1: you again next week, guys.
0: And Alex. Thank you. We also want to thank our producers Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week R.J. Vote and contributing reporters Dorothy Atkins, Daniel Siegel, Emily Field, and Jeff Overly. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. The show is available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Please make sure to subscribe, leave us a written review, and give us five stars. That helps other people find per se. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about today, check out our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and join us again next week.